All right. Well, welcome uh, tonight. This is uh, Prophecy Night, we call it. And we've been talking about why Bible prophecy matters now uh, more than ever. And I want to uh, start, as we usually do, with a couple of memes that were uh, pretty humorous. Uh, someone uh, sent me these. not the first time they've made the cut and, and sent me something that gets put on the air here, but these were pretty funny. It's all about photography. So I've got four pictures here that were snapped at just the right moment that uh, really... Uh, we're kind of humorous. So this one says, for a wedding, it's necessary to find the right bride, but it's also necessary to find the right photographer. <laughs> if you can imagine all the rest of your life, your wedding photo. It's almost like she knows because she's, she's looking at him like, oh boy. Uh, and then this one, if you've ever wanted to capture that precise moment when the stork brings the babies, here we go. Someone managed to catch it. And uh, this one was pretty cute. As a deer hunter, I appreciated this one. Show off. <laughs> Those of you that are listening to this podcast tomorrow, uh, you're going to have to take the time to go to our Rumble channel and watch the video because these are the kind that are only visuals. And then because you know how much I love cats, I had to include a cat picture. Uh, this is, uh, you know, that's the only time I like cats, when they look like deer, you know, so... Anyway, so let's do some announcements before we dive in, and I'll tell you kind of where we're going to be heading over the next three weeks. But uh, first of all, if you haven't heard, I was uh, really excited to get tapped to as a last-minute uh, fill-in for uh, Tom Hughes' conference down in Texas uh, that's coming up uh, August 25th and 26th. And what an honor to be, uh, be a part of that group. My good friend Andy Woods will be there. Alex Newman will be there. Of course, Tom himself, several others uh, will be there. And uh, so... I pray for us as we head down there, not this weekend, but next weekend. Uh, the great thing about Tom, and this is my first time uh, speaking with, with his group, uh, although I've been on his program before, uh, and we will be on that again in September, but I've never spoken at the conferences, but somehow I'm amazed at how they do it. They, the, the conference itself is sold out, but they're selling live stream tickets, and they're 15 bucks for the, for the two-day conference, and that gets you access to all the speakers live, and if you can't watch it live, if you buy the ticket, you get to watch it as many times as you want for the next 30 days, so you have 30 days to access it unlimited. So anyway, if you're interested, we've put up a banner at their request on our website. You can click on it. It takes you right to their conference page. And again, $14.99, and, uh, and you can watch it. So if you've got nothing better to do next weekend, or if you want uh, to see what uh, some of the speakers, including myself, have to say, you can uh, check that out. Lots of great material from last week um, since we last met at Prophecy Night. Our Saturday preparedness podcast was on how to prepare for a natural disaster. That's available as a podcast. Um, uh, let's see, yesterday I did the sixth installment of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions, and it was a long one. I didn't realize how long it was till I finished, but it was 90 minutes, and so lots of questions in there. Some of them quick, short, one-sentence answers, some of them longer uh, explanations, but uh, I encourage you to check that out. Uh, and then we had last week my friend Shane on to talk about the double-edged sword of technology and tyranny. Um, we've had him on several times over the last several months, and part of that is that I've kind of been living in the technology world this last year. Since the last book came out, you know, this next one has been all about the false prophet's role, which, of course, is AI, technology, 
planetary control grid, biometric surveillance, all that stuff. And that's what we're covering in the new book. So he's helped me a lot with just being a source of, res of uh, articles and just being able to bounce ideas off of. Great show. Uh, it was kind of amazing. It was one of those that I thought, I didn't know there was anybody out there that could make Randy look encouraging. And, uh, and he did on that episode. So speaking of Randy, our World Events Update was Wednesday. And uh, looking forward to the next one of those uh, tomorrow. Uh, we had Nathan Jones back on for part two of The Mighty Angels of Revelation. And it's amazing. He just goes section by section through the book of Revelation. And he's identified 72 angels that are referenced in some form or fashion in the book. And, and it's really uh, just a great discussion. really appreciate him. So you can check that one out as too. Some more events upcoming. Uh, Monday, September 11th, right here at Plum Creek. We are hosting, along with TPUSA, a, an evening where I'm going to be speaking about borders, the Bible, and believers, what God's Word has to say about borders, and expo exposing the globalist agenda to eliminate a borders. That's free, right here, 6.30, Monday night, the 11th. Uh, in September, I'll be up in Fort Collins uh, for a Bible prophecy conference with uh, Randy Price, Bill Salas, uh, and a few others, uh, Dan Starevich. And so that one, uh, as far as I know, tickets are still on sale. You can click the link on our website. It'll take you right to the conference website. But they're, they put together a fantastic uh, conference that I've never worked with these folks before, but it looks like it's well-organized, well-structured. I'll be speaking three times at that one. If you're available and want to go, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump up the road at Fort Collins. Uh, then uh, looking ahead to October, we'll be at the uh, Prophecy Watchers Imminent Return a conference in uh, uh, Oklahoma. Where is that? Norman, Oklahoma. And then in December, I'll be in Dallas for the pre-trib conference, so speaking there. So uh, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. Now, those of you that are a part of the Plum Creek Church family on Sundays, you should sign up for two newsletters. One, the Plum Creek one, that gives announcements relevant to our church, and then Not By Works, which is relevant to Not By Works. Uh, if you have another church home, but you participate in Prophecy Night, it's a good idea to go ahead and get on that newsletter as well, because it gives you a chance to get updates and you know, special announcements and you know the resources that we send out twice a week, usually on Tuesdays and Saturdays. Uh, speaking of Prophecy Night, I mentioned this last week, so because of my upcoming schedule, we're going to take a break at the end of this month. So we've got three Prophecy Night sessions left, um, and I'll tell you what we're going to do with them here in just a moment, uh, starting tonight. Uh, and then no Prophecy Night on Tuesday starting in September. We will pick it back up, I promise. I don't know when. kind of depends on how things go uh, in the fall. If we can put something together in the winter, we'll do it. Um, and we may do some special events here and there, even if we can't kick it back off on a regular basis. But just stay tuned. But we wanted to let you know that we will not have uh, uh, this. We have three more Prophecy Nights counting uh, tonight. All right, let's get going. Uh, so we've been talking about how the stage is being set, and we talked about a lot of different categories. I won't read through them all, but you can go back and check out the previous sessions. They're all available. All of our videos and audio are always av available perpetually. I think we have over 500 podcasts already. Um, so, but tonight we're going to shift gears for the remaining three weeks until our break. And really get into some biblical stuff. You know, one of the questions that has come up a lot uh, on different uh, shows that I've done, different Q&As and so forth, is 
uh, just a lot of people still don't understand the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. And as I mentioned, I think Sunday at Plum Creek, you know, given the way things are going in this world, I, I thought we better spend the next three weeks uh, talking about the rapture because it could happen. And some of you might not know what's going on. You'll be just going up wondering what in the world is happening. Uh, probably not this group. You guys are pretty, pretty uh, biblically uh, studious. But, but, you know, for the folks that, that watch online and that watch this, it gets passed around and forwarded and people send it to people. We just want to be very, very clear. So hopefully over the next three weeks, this will provide a succinct, clear, uh, bottom line teaching on the doctrine of the rapture that you can go back to again and again. You can, as I said, you can kind of bookmark it and afford it. We will take your questions like we always do at the end. Uh, and I'm not sure how far we'll get. I put the whole presentation together into one uh, PowerPoint presentation, but we'll just kind of walk through it. Uh, does that sound good? Okay, so here we go. So what is the rapture? Uh, as I talked about with my friend Tommy Ice on a recent program, a lot of people really naively and embarrassingly, frankly, try to suggest that the rapture is not in the Bible and that the word rapture is not in the Bible, neither of which are true. Both the concept, the doctrine, and the word are found in the Bible. Uh, the Bible was not written, of course, in English. So if you're saying, well, the word rapture is not in the English Bible, well, first of all, there are some English translations that do have it. But that would be like saying the word God is not in the Bible or the word Jesus is not in the Bible because those are English words, right? So the word rapture is a translation of a Greek word. Uh, like all translations, the Bible in the New Testament was written originally in Greek. Uh, that uh, came about by Jerome, one of the church fathers, uh, 400 years after Christ. And in the Latin Vulgate, it's called the Latin translation of the Bible, he uses the word rapire a form, you know, of the word in Latin. It's where we get the word rapture. So, uh, so you know, what is the rapture? Let's look at some key verses. I'm thinking about, if we get to it in the remaining two weeks, closing out with a, a, a segment on um, little known or maybe obscure rapture passages. Because it seems like every time we talk about the rapture, we focus right in on the obvious ones that are very explicit about the rapture. But the rapture is actually alluded to in a lot of other places in the New Testament as well. Uh, but let's go first to 1 Corinthians 15. And the first thing we need to understand about the rapture is that it is a mystery, just like the church is a mystery. Now, when you hear the word mystery in English, as we just said, you know, the Bible wasn't written in English, so mystery is a translation of a Greek word, it happens to be the word mysterion, so it's a cognate. It, it's, it's where the, the Greek letters, if you transliterate them directly, basically spell mystery. But it doesn't mean mystery the way we think of it in English. In English, we most often use the word in terms of something that is confusing, hard to figure out, like an Agatha Christie mystery. You know, That's not what the word means in Greek. It means previously undisclosed revelation. So let's break that down. Revelation means something that God is revealing. It's the, in Greek, it's the word apocalypsis. So it's the unveiling of information. And God's word really is his self-revelation to mankind. Over a period of 1,500 years through some 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages originally, Hebrew, for a period of time during the Babylonian exile, portions of scripture were written in Aramaic. And then, of course, the New Testament was written 
entirely in Greek. So God, during that 1,500 years, unveiled himself to us. As you've heard me say, the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. This is everything I want you to know about me. And so uh, a mystery is something that was previously undisclosed. So it's new information. You know, a lot of the Bible is uh, building upon principles and themes that are mentioned once, and then they just get elaborated on. Obviously, much of the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. So that wouldn't be a mystery. It's already been revealed, and New Testament authors often just quote it and apply it. But a mystery, in this case, is something that was not previously revealed. So it's new information. And so back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Well, what's this mystery? Right off the bat, there it is. We will not all die. So until this point, they had no reason to think that there would be a group of people en masse that don't die. Now, we have examples. I understand isolated cases, Elijah and Enoch and whatever, but this is a whole new truth that God wanted people to know. And as I mentioned, it's interesting that the church is also a mystery. I should have put these verses on there today. But in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul explains that the church is something new that God is doing. <clears throat> he said uh, in verse, uh, let's start out in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, the, the, the new stewardship that God has, has unveiled, emphasizing grace. Not that grace was new, but grace is more emphasized, high definition, you might say, which was given to me for you. How that by revelation, which is the only way a mystery can be revealed, right? You know, By revelation, he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, but this mystery, he says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. What is the mystery? Verse 6, that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister. So the church itself is a mystery, something new that God uh, was doing. Uh, those who insist that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan of the ages, then they don't recognize this central truth of the New Testament, that the church did not replace Israel. It came alongside Israel. It was a new work, not a supplanting work. They didn't, the church did not supersede Israel. God didn't set Israel aside or forget Israel or abandon all of his many unconditional promises to them in the Old Testament. He simply is announcing a new work. Um, so obviously if someone doesn't understand the mystery of the church, they're not going to understand the mystery of the rapture. And that's the reason that those who believe in replacement theology, that is that the church replaced Israel, and there is no future for national Israel, they say, they don't believe in the rapture either, and they think the rapture and the second coming are just one event in their view. So uh, the rapture is a new part of God's new plan, this newly revealed plan, new in the sense of newly revealed. God didn't like 
decide to change his mind or suddenly look down and think, boy, they killed my son. What should I do now? I mean, this was part of God's plan all along. God never changes. He's sovereign. He, he's, he's, you know, in eternity past, this plan was put together. We're going to talk about that plan um, as we go through this. But he's now just unveiling it and making it clear uh, through the apostles to us. So again, a mystery is previously undisclosed revelation, new revelation in God's plan, information that had not been revealed in the Old Testament. So before we get to the key passages besides 1 Corinthians 51 about uh, the rapture, let's define it. So I'm going to tell you what it is, and I'm going to show you biblically why we know that to be true. The rapture refers to the sudden catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air when he returns at the close of the present age. It's about as simply as I can say it. The rapture refers to the sudden catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air when he returns at the close of the present age. So if you look at an end times chart, uh, remember the end times refers to everything that is unfulfilled prophecy yet future. The last days are the days in which we currently live. Remember in, in Hebrews uh, 1, the Bible says that God, who at various ways and at various times spoke in times past uh, to us through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through his Son. Then he goes on to explain that Christ came, and then he's now sitting at the right hand of God. So these are the last days. You'll see why in just a moment. But the end times are all of the unfulfilled prophecy yet to come, uh, what we love to study, Bible prophecy, right? So this chart reflects some of the key markers in that time. It's certainly not exhaustive. There are a lot of Bible prophecies that are not uh, referenced on this uh, uh, chart. Uh, but uh, if you look over here on the left, the first thing that sort of starts the clock ticking on God's prophetic end times plan is the rapture. So the way we say that is that the rapture is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. Nothing happens before the rapture. That's why all you see to the left of the rapture on the chart is the church, where we are today. Obviously, it's not drawn to scale, but it is this uh, inter-advent age that is fleshed out in Scripture uh, as the Lord began to reveal to us the teachings about the church. We understand uh, the distinction between the universal church, which is every believer today on earth, and the local church, which is local assemblies that meet to fulfill the purpose of the church. We understand issues related to how, to, how the church works, how to govern the church, what are the offices in the church, what should we be doing with each other in the church. And then, of course, the rapture speaks to the end of the church age. So once the rapture happens, the church age is over. And that phase of God's plan that he revealed and talks about in Ephesians 3 is no longer active. And so his spotlight at that point shifts back to Israel. And this is where we disagree with those who suggest the church has replaced Israel because they don't have any of this stuff that you see on the screen in their charts between the rapture and the second coming because they just squeeze them all together into one event. So we're living in one age today, uh, and if you're if they're an amillennialist, they uh, you know they think that we're living in the millennium. Essentially, there is no millennium. The church is the millennium. By the way, I, I misspoke a, a week or so ago when I was talking about Wayne Grudem, who I know, and I was it was just a not a mistake. It was just I misspoke, uh, but I referred to him as an amillennialist. He's definitely not. He's a historic premillennialist, which is 
not much better. See, in my mind, you're either a premillennialist or you're a wrong millennialist. That's kind of the two. So I sort of tend to lump them all together sometimes. You know, ah mill, post mill, historic pre mill. You know, it's like pick your poison, right? Um, so anyway, I apologize for that, but he definitely is not ah mill. He's, he's historic pre mill. But in either case, he, he does not believe in a literal, you know, fulfillment of some of these uh, prophecies that are for Israel because he thinks the church and Israel are one body. So their charts, you know, they kind of squeeze together the second coming, that arrow you see coming down on the right, the rapture that's highlighted in yellow. And by squeezing it together, all that other stuff just falls out. There's no place for it to go. So they spiritualize it all. And as you've heard me say, and I diagrammed out a few weeks ago, the the sealed judgments, that's the church. The trumpet judgments, that's the church. The bold judgments, that's the church. You know, the thousand years, that's the church. Everything in Revelation is the church. It's just one big symbolic me metaphor. Uh, so we believe that the rapture is something that is unveiled. We're going to look at those passages now that is specifically related to the church. Uh, and as I said, our definition, it's the sudden catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air when he returns at the close of this present age. And that's critical because David, Moses, you know, Solomon, Elijah, you know, all these, they're not going to be caught up in the rapture. Okay, this is a specific blessing just for uh, the church age. Uh, all right, so there are several key passages. Uh, if you were to make a list, and you ought to be able to, to know these, it would be good to commit them to memory. Um, and these are 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, which is the earliest passage that explicitly gives us information about this event. It's really the primary text. And that was written uh, on the second missionary journey uh, from... Uh, well, I forget where from, but it was written around 51 uh, A.D. So Paul was saved in 35 A.D. The church was founded in 33 A.D., so the church is less than 20 years old. And through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit began to reveal this information. Now, this was not, in terms of in God's revelation on earth, the earliest reference to the rapture. It's just the earliest reference in detail where it begins to give us the information about it. Uh, when does the rapture first get mentioned to people on earth? Anybody know? In the upper room discourse by Jesus, which of course happened in 33 AD, the night that he was betrayed. And in John 14, Jesus promises the disciples uh, uh, behold, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again to receive you to where I am. I don't think they would have understood it at that point, because they were still thinking Jewish context, coming kingdom, the reigning of Christ, the defeating the Romans, ushering in the long-awaited messianic kingdom. But the wording there is, is crucial. We're going to look at a comparison chart uh, before we're done tonight that, that makes it clear that is definitely talking about the rapture. But in terms of doctrinal information that explains it, uh, we get that first from 1 Thessalonians 4. And then a little bit later in 56, 57 AD, Paul uh, you know, elaborates on it in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. 
going back to Thessalonians, I believe 2 Thessalonians 2 is also a key rapture passage. Not all dispensationalists believe that, and that's fine. I wouldn't die on that hill. It's, it's one of those passages that comes down to the meaning of one word, and there are different uh, lexical options for a word. Words always get defined by their usage, not by a dictionary, right? Uh, so depending on the context and how you take the word apostasia, then it's, uh, it could be a key rapture passage. Either way, I might add that verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2, nobody, nobody uh, argues, nobody disagrees. It's definitely talking about the rapture. But he's just mentioning it in passing, depending on how you take the rest of the passage. So we may come back to that passage at some point, too. Titus 2.13 is a key rapture passage, the blessed hope, looking for the blessed hope of our Savior. And then 1 Thess 1 uh, the whole book of First Thessalonians is really about the rapture, where he talks about being rescued from the wrath to come. And then, as I mentioned, John 14, where it's the, actually the earliest reference explicitly to uh, the rapture. So that means, if that's true, and, and I believe it is, that there, the rapture is not mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, which Jesus gave the day before John 14, on Wednesday from atop the Mount of Olives, in answer to the question, when are you going to come and inaugurate your kingdom? The, the disciples were obsessed with the kingdom. They wanted to know when was it going to start. Uh, he had just, uh, you know, cursed the fig tree. He had overturned the tables of the money changers. He had quite harsh words to say for the first century Jewish leaders who had rejected him. He knew he was about to be betrayed and crucified for our sins. And uh, so he he talks about how, you know, not one stone is going to be left upon another, you know, in this temple. And that got the disciples' attention. They, they were confused and wondered, well, how can you have a kingdom without a temple? And so they said, well, what, then what, when are you going to come? What's going to be the sign of your coming? And the Olivet Discourse is his answer to that question. And it's found in Matthew 24, 25, 24 and 25, uh, Luke uh, 21, and Mark 13. And it's all about Israel, all about the signs uh, of the times in that final seven-year period. In fact, the parallels, I have a chart in my chart book showing the parallels between Revelation 6 and Matthew 24. It's, it's, it's uncanny how clear it is when you really start to look at it. So the signs that Jesus gives there are not signs of the present age. The church was not in existence yet. It had not been revealed yet. It doesn't get revealed until uh, Acts 2. And then the subsequent letters that Paul and Peter write uh, that talk about it. Um, so Wednesday of the week that he was uh, crucified and laid in a tomb by Friday morning, he talks about the Olivet, he, from the top of Mount of Olives, he talks about the second coming and all the signs that will accompany that. But the rapture is not found in that section. A lot of people think it is. I uh, respectfully disagree. A lot of really solid Bible teachers would argue that it is. I just disagree. Um, so let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians 4, again, this primary passage. Verse 16 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So what's that mean? Well, when a person dies, their physical body, made up of flesh and bone and uh, organs and all of that stuff, goes to the grave or 
if they're burned up or lost at sea or whatever happens. The point is those very atoms that constitute their matter stay here. The immaterial part of man, the eternal part, goes for a believer immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. That's true of all believers of all ages, Old and New Testament alike. And an unbeliever who does not know the Lord, who has not accepted the free gift of eternal life, they go immediately to a place of torment called hell. Well, actually, depending on how you look at it, it could be Hades or Sheol or, you know, whatever. But it's, metaphorically speaking, it's, it's hell, the final resting place of the unredeemed. And so but that's just the immaterial part. But when all is said and done, and time shall be no more, and God, you know, destroys this old earth and, and the old heaven and recreates it, in timelessness, remember in the new heaven and the new earth, there's no sun, there's no night or day. I mean, there's day, there's no night. Um, when that happens, the physicality of every human being has to have some type of eternal constitution to be able to, you know, endure eternity, whether in hell or in the kingdom. Uh, that's why Paul says in, in that same passage we looked at a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Now, one of the questions that I, I can't remember if I answered it on Monday's episode or if it's in the queue for the next one, but I saw it come through our email. Someone said, well, if, if flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom, how are babies born during the millennium? Well, Paul's not talking about the millennial phase of the kingdom. We know there will be flesh and, bone, flesh and blood bodies in the, in the millennial part of the kingdom because they're the ones that survive the tribulation. And Jesus says to them, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. So they, they got saved during the tribulation. They were not martyred. They hid out, you know, whatever. Somehow they're the sheep at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes back. And so the millennial phase is still on this old earth. Flesh and blood works fine on this old earth, as you noticed. Um, so uh, that when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, he's talking about the eternal kingdom. If you go back to my chart here, remember on the far right there, see how I've got in purple the messianic kingdom? And see how it's got two, at, two segments or aspects? The first segment is the thousand-year millennium that Revelation 20 talks about. That after that, it continues in the eternal state, in the new heavens and the new earth, but it's still the kingdom. Because the Bible is very clear in Daniel and in Luke, and every time the, the, the kingdom is mentioned, for example, 2 Samuel 7, it talks about the kingdom will be forever and ever, and of the kingdom there will be no end. So it's not just a thousand years, and then the kingdom is done. The kingdom starts at Christ's return when he takes the throne, and it continues forever. What changes is a scenery change. It goes from being on this old earth to being on a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth. So that's when we can't have flesh and blood, if that makes sense. So back to 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For Christians of the present church age who have died, of course, they themselves are in uh, heaven. Uh, Paul says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Um, we see other examples of that in Scripture, like Luke 16 with the Lazarus uh, and the rich man. So, but as we get ready to, to, to come back with Christ at the second coming and help him rule and reign on the kingdom and participate in the kingdom, you know, we've got to have our body. So that's when the resurrection happens for those who have died in the Lord. 
but notice that's not where the teaching stops. Paul goes on to say, then after this, after this resurrection of the bodies of those who died in the Lord, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds. In, in, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So Christ is coming back to the clouds. Believers that have already died are coming back with him. Their bodies are going to be resurrected. They'll be reunited with their, their body in a glorified form. And, and we're being caught up. That word caught up, you should underline it, that's the word rapture in the Latin translation of the Bible. Uh, so this is 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, which we looked at uh, first off, this is the mystery, that some people will not have to die physically. They instead will be caught up in 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Paul calls it changed. When will that happen? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet, trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible. Same thing we see over here in 1 Thessalonians 4. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 15, And we, if we're there when it happens, shall be changed. Uh, meaning we'll be translated. We won't have to face death. We'll get our glorified body uh, when we are caught up. So that's the great mystery of the rapture, that there's going to be a generation that hears the trumpet and we're caught up. And, and that's a great blessing. Now, sadly, we've been waiting for 2,000 years. <laughs> For that to happen and you know to give you a quick survey of church history it didn't take long for the early church to lose their hope and to kind of give up i mean if you can imagine the people that walked and talked with christ and then walked and talked with paul who's the primary purveyor of the doctrine of the rapture they were looking up all the time they believed, and we're going to get to imminency in this final three weeks, the doctrine of imminency and how clearly it's taught in Scripture. But they believed he was coming back at any moment, at any time. So now they get old. Toward the end of the first century, they're passing away. They didn't get to see the rapture. They went the way of all flesh. But the next generation, they still... Uh, and some of them might have walked and talked with Christ too as youngsters, and certainly with the apostles... Uh, they still were filled with hope because they, they heard it from their parents and they heard it from their grandparents and they were just excited about knowing that this Jesus who saved the world from sin, defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose again, that he's coming back. But you know, as each succeeding generation comes and goes, they begin to kind of push that expectation to the back. Simultaneously, the old devil was already early at work in the church by the end of the first century promoting false doctrine. In fact, 1 John 4, which is the premise for my most recent books, uh, The Spirit of the Antichrist is Already at Work, was written to, to address some of these false teachings about Christology. And so already there were false teachers out there suggesting Christ is not going to come back, that this is the kingdom. They misunderstood what he said. They misinterpreted what he said. Plus, the Bible, where it was explicitly taught, wasn't readily available to everybody. Uh, 
And so by the time you get to the 4th, 5th century, four, let's see, Augustine, 400s, uh, you know, people had, had largely didn't have the same sense of enthusiastic expectancy that they did early on. Uh, and so Augustine comes along and writes his famous book, City of God, in which he sort of describes everything in metaphorical terms as if this is it. The earth, you know, it, it, you know 1,600 years ago is the, what Christ meant, and he left it for us to inhabit and to have the kingdom. But that's not what the Bible says, and any normal person... Uh, would read it and never come to that conclusion, but they weren't able to read the Bible, especially because by that time the Catholic Church had come in, you get into the Middle Ages, they were forbidding people from reading the Bible. They were claiming to be the king, and, you know, the Pope was the king, and the church was the sovereign, and they started, you know, literally killing people if they were caught reading a Bible, and they started charging people indulgences if they wanted to get into heaven, and, they, you know, all kinds of problems with Roman Catholicism, and that lasted a long time. But then, you know, not surprisingly, what do we see happen after the Protestant Reformation, before that, the uh, uh, invention of the printing press, the proliferation first of Greek and Latin Bibles, uh, then eventually of English Bibles? Well, by the time you get to the 19th century, you have an explosion of, of teaching about the rapture and the second coming and the distinction between the two and the blessed hope of the church and you had Bible conferences springing up all over the place in the late 1800s and early 1900s. You had seminaries and Bible colleges springing up to teach the truth about uh, the Bible and you know the 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 naive enemies of I, don't, I shouldn't say enemy but the, the naive uh, folks out there that disagree with us about the doctrine of the rapture. I can't tell you how many times you'll hear them say, "Oh, the, the rapture just it." was made up in the 1800s by a guy named John Nelson Darby. And it's just so patently false, and we've proven that in, in academic peer-reviewed journal writings. We've shown that even though we have the Dark Ages in every generation, every 100 years for sure, every century, there was a historical record of somebody that at least was proliferating the doctrine of a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church and once for the Israel. So it's just, it's just silly that people continue to perpetuate that lie. Uh, there's an obvious reason why dispensational teaching really took root in the 19th century and flourished and is what we have uh, today. Um, so, you know, some people didn't get to see the, uh, the, the return of Christ. You know, my grandfather didn't get... Uh, to see it. If Jesus doesn't hurry up, my parents aren't going to get to see it. I wish he would hurry up because I uh, want them to be able to experience the rapture. Um, but the fact is, regardless of how long it's taken so far, God's timetable is his timetable. You know, he tells us we don't know the timetable. So regardless, there is going to be a generation that does not die that is caught up as believers to meet the Lord in the air. And what, what, what I've been so uh, passionate about in recent years uh, and on so many other Bible prophecy teachers is that all the signs seem to point, point to that being soon. Now, within Bible prophecy teaching, there's a range of teachers and we don't all agree on everything and on one end you've got folks that tend to be a little more sensationalist you know they're out there 
looking at planetary alignments literally and trying to get out their calculators and try to identify how this ancient you know, Jewish feast fits with this calendar and they're trying to pick pinpoint dates. That's not me. But I certainly appreciate their enthusiasm and expectancy for the return of the Lord. But the, the point is, we, are, we really believe as we look at the signs of the times and things that are happening, uh, one of the biggest of those being the establishment of Israel back in the land in 1948, that we're getting close. So that's why it's important to understand this doctrine and uh, not let you know, people uh, brush it aside. And you know what, what I found with people that disagree with us on the rapture, especially lay people, I mean, there are some good scholarly you know, arguments that are to be had, and I've engaged in some of those. And you know, there are books out there that have written, and then rejoinders and rejoinders to the rejoinder. And you know, there is a scholarly place to have this discussion. But by and large, the populace just dismisses it with an imperious wave of the hand, acting like anybody would believe in the rapture is a complete nutcase, you know. And that bothers me because uh, they're missing out on the joy and the hope that, that the Bible gives us. Uh, you know, we got an email, I think it was yesterday, from a friend who had come across someone who was just kind of poo-pooing the, the rapture and acting like, oh, you know, there's no difference between the rapture and the second coming, and you're mixed up on that. And, and you know, if you're not well-grounded in doctrine, that could shake you a little bit. Uh, but that, that's why it's so important to, to have a firm foundation and be resolved in what the Bible plainly teaches. So that, yeah, I mean, if people want to reject it and, and make fun of you for believing it, that's fine. I mean, people make fun of all of us for believing in God. <laughs> and they make fun of us for believing in salvation by grace through faith. And they, they, they ridicule us for believing that you know, homosexuality is wrong and transgenderism is wrong. I mean, we, we're not afraid to stand for what the Bible teaches. So don't be afraid to stand for the Bible, I mean, for the rapture, because it's clearly taught. So again, uh, this word caught up is the word rapture. Now, when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what Paul wrote was harpazo. That's the Greek word. It means to snatch or take away. Harpazo was used 13 times in the New Testament, and it's you know translated different ways. But uh, let's look at a couple of places where it's used. Again, to snatch or take away. Uh, in Acts 8, remember when Philip witnessed to the Ethiopian uh, uh, political leader? And he said, uh, after that, when he had come, and then he baptized him after that, when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. And that phrase, caught away, is harpazo. So he was just, the, the eunuch saw him no more. He's gone. God took him somewhere else. Now, that wasn't a rapture, that, but that's just a use of the term. Uh, harpazo. Uh, another meaning, again, meaning always has to be determined by context, uh, is to rescue from threatening danger. To rescue from threatening danger. So we see this word used in Jude uh, 23 to refer to pulling people out of the fire. It's a metaphor for, you know, saving them from physical destruction and consequences of sin. Uh, remember, save doesn't always mean eternally. It can mean just rescue. And so sometimes harpazo means to rescue from threatening danger. The question is, what does it mean here? This sudden catching up, and I think that's exactly 
the point of the rapture is that it rescues us from some danger. We are snatched out of harm's way. And the, the uh, analogy that I've used many times through the years is one of a, you know, of a child who runs out into the street to maybe to chase a ball or something, and there's a big truck coming around the corner, too fast to stop in time, but a passerby walking on the sidewalk quickly discerns the situation, sees what's happening, and in an instant reaches out and grabs that child by the collar and yanks it out of the way as that truck zooms by. That's the picture. They were snatched out of the way. So the question then becomes, rescued from what? Rescued from what? And this is where even some people that believe in the rapture get, go astray. And it's where all of those who don't believe in the rapture accuse us all of going astray, which absolutely is not the case. What are we rescued from? Certainly, emphatically, we're not rescued from trouble, hardship, persecution, difficulty in life. We know that because the Bible very plainly tells us we're going to have those things, right? So the rapture isn't a promise that, 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 that the generation that experiences it somehow isn't going to have rough times. Jesus promised we're all going to have rough times. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Paul said, you know, all who desire to live godly, all, including the generation that gets raptured, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution, period. So nobody that, that I know of, certainly not in dispensational scholarly circles, uh, teaches that the rapture rescues us from trouble or hardship. So what exactly does the rapture rescue us from them? It rescues us from something. We're snatched away from something. What is it? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible tells us exactly what we're rescued from. In 1 Thessalonians, the same book that tells us about the rapture. He says, We are to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us. Just another word for rescued. In fact, the New American Standard translates it rescued. If you use the NASB, that's that's the same word. It's just different English translation. Jesus who rescues us from what? Or delivers us from what? The wrath to come. That's the point of the rapture. Because Paul goes on to say, God did not appoint us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Now here again is where English can be so unfortunate because the Bible wasn't written in English. Salvation, there's not talking about our eternal salvation into heaven, but simply deliverance. We have not been appointed to this wrath of God that is to come. Rather, we will be delivered through the rapture, through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the wrath of God is something that people just don't understand the prophetic wrath of God. But all through the Bible, we see the reference to this future seven-year concentrated time when at the end of the age, God pours out his wrath on the Antichrist, the false prophet, ultimately the devil. Meanwhile, the devil is pouring out his wrath as well. The book of Revelation uses the same word. It's the word orge in Greek of both the devil and the, the Christ and God. And so, all through the Bible, we see references to this. Uh, Jesus himself, in that Olivet Discourse we talked about a moment ago, he's saying, you know, you want to know when I'm going to come back and, and, and establish the kingdom? It'll be during the time of God's wrath. There will be great distress in the land and wrath 
upon this people. We get to Revelation chapter 6. The Antichrist comes. That's the first seal. He's unveiled. He signs the treaty, Daniel 9, 27. And what does the Bible say? The great day of God's wrath has come. That's the wrath, is the tribulation period. Zephaniah the prophet talks about that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. See, day in Scripture can be, a, can be used symbolically to refer to a period of time. Now, obviously, context determines meaning. You know, uh, in Genesis, it's quite clear from Exodus 20, verse 11, that it's a literal 24-hour day. You can't just arbitrarily pick one passage of Scripture and impose the meaning there on another passage. That's uh, an exegetical fallacy called, you know, uh, uh, illegitimate totality transfer or something like that, where you take one meaning and assume it means that everywhere. Uh, that's, that's, that's not what's happening in Genesis. We know that very clearly by comparing several passages. And there are a lot of places where day means a day, right? Like Jesus was in the tomb three days. Doesn't mean three 24-hour periods. Just means on three different days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I've talked about that elsewhere. But the point is the day of the wrath is the seven-year tribulation. Zephaniah goes on to say, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, talking about the land of Israel. Joel says, the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. So that's what we're rescued from. And he tells us that twice in 1 Thessalonians, that Jesus will rescue us, New American Standard, rescue us from the wrath that is to come, future. Same thing in chapter 5, verse 9. God did not appoint us to that wrath, but to obtain deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we look at a panoramic view of, of, of God's plan of the ages, we can tell, as I said earlier, that we're living in the last days because the only age left on God's calendar is the kingdom age, right? Uh, that, that's it, the kingdom age. In fact, a lot of people have tried to suggest, and they might be right, I just can't prove it biblically, that essentially God's calendar of time, because he started time, he spoke the world into existence. Uh, has it ever occurred to you that the Bible begins with in the beginning? Beginning is a time word, right? Paul twice in his writings in the New Testament talks about before time began. So God exists in eternity outside of time, space, and matter. When he created the universe, he created time. And so some people suggest that that plan of time is 7,000 years. And uh, that's very intriguing to me. I had a guest on our program not some months ago to, uh, to talk about that. The passages that are often used to defend that, I can't go there. They just don't seem to be properly interpreted in context. But it would not surprise me a bit if when all is said and done and the rapture happens, the kingdom happens, and we're in heaven, the great white throne happens, and we look back after the new, from the perspective of the new heavens and the new earth, it wouldn't surprise me a bit if time had been 7,000 years. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of people think that we're getting close. Because, you know, you do the math. We believe in a young earth. The earth was created roughly 6,000 years ago. Uh, and not... not billions of years ago, like the, the eugenicist Darwin 
uh, thought. Um, and so if you look at that, you know, the church has been roughly 2,000 years so far. Uh, if it started in 33 AD, which is the best you know, evidence of that, then by 2033, it'll be 2,000 years. So, you know, not trying to set dates here, but I'm just saying it, it, there's a lot of interesting, intriguing stuff about it. But notice what, what happens after the rapture as a transition to the kingdom age. You've got the wrath of God being poured out, that seven-year tribulation. I don't think I put, let me see if I've got my Daniel chart here. Yeah. So if you go back to Daniel's prophecy, which is the whole key to understanding biblical prophecy, the first 483 years of his prophecy have already been fulfilled historically, unquestionably. We know when it started with the decree of Artaxerxes. We know when it ended with Christ's triumphal entry. We know what Daniel said was going to happen after the 483rd year, namely the Christ was going to be cut off and that the temple was going to be destroyed. Both of those things happened literally. But he says that final seven-year piece of the puzzle has not happened yet, and it won't happen until the man who is the Antichrist signs the covenant uh, between Israel and, and, the, you know, and many, as the text says. So we don't know when that seven years is going to start, but we know it's yet future. We know that it's referred to as the day of the Lord's wrath or the time of his wrath, the overflowing scourge, all of these other things. And we know that the church won't be here during it, which makes perfect sense because the, when Christ comes back, he's coming back to fulfill the covenant promises to Israel. He's coming back to take the long-awaited throne. The first time he came, they crowned him with thorns. The next time he comes, they're going to crown him with the king's crown. You know, So, uh, you know, the, the wrath of God is this... Uh, let me go back here. If you look at the book of Revelation, that's what the bulk of the book of Revelation talks about. This seven-year period right here. The, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, a lot of other stuff going on in there. The, the rise of the Antichrist, the rise of the false prophet who I'm writing about right now. I can't wait to get that out there. Uh, it's just amazing. Uh, you know, all that we see happening to give the false prophet the power that he's going to need to do what the Bible says he's going to do during this time which is roll out a full-spectrum planetary control grid where everybody on earth is tracked. But this period, this seven years, is the wrath of God. Again, at the start of it, they say, for the great day of his wrath has come. So the rapture is not the same thing as the second coming. Second coming is completely different. If we go back to my chart, you see the rapture over here that there's a special blessing, a mystery for the church. This, the, the, this, that's the rapture. The second coming happens at the end of the tribulation when, when, Christ, uh, when Christ comes back. And by the way, according to Revelation 19.11, we're coming back with him on white horses to help rule and, and reign. So let me just reiterate some of the differences between the rapture and the second coming. And then we'll open it up to questions here as we, as we close out. So these are comparing the two key passages in Scripture. The one on the rapture, which is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, and the second coming, which is Revelation 19, 
11 to 21. And by the way, all of these charts, if you're interested, are in our chart book, which we have out on the resource table. If you're watching online, just go to notbyworks.org store, and you, you can find it there. We sell it digitally or in print. Uh, so let's, let's contrast them here. The, the rapture, Christ comes in the air. I mean, we read it, 1 Thessalonians 14. Where does this take place? The clouds, the air, right? The second coming, he comes to the earth on the Mount of Olives, by the way. His feet literally touch down, and he takes the throne. At the rapture, only the saved are in view. Only believers. The, the rapture is a, a, a blessing. It's a rescue, not a judgment. So at the rapture, all we ever read about is uh, the saved people being caught up, or those that have already died being resurrected. And it's a message of comfort. Comfort one another with these words. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4.18 says. So at the second coming, by contrast, the saved and unsaved are in view. What happens at the second coming? Jesus is going to say to everybody on earth that's still alive, let's split up into two teams and play kickball. Not exactly, but he's going to say, I want all the sheep over here and I want all the goats over here. To the sheep, he's going to say, come on in to the kingdom. To the goats, he's going to say, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Not the lake of fire. That comes about after the thousand years, but it's the same, you know, it's going to feel the same. <laughs> you know, so it may be have a different name, but it ain't going to be uh, pleasant. And by the way, I always feel compelled to mention uh, you know, God does not send anybody to hell. God is doing absolutely everything he possibly can to keep everybody out of hell. I mean, what else could he do? He paid the penalty. He's issued a universal offer. It's a free gift. He's told us again and again, for example, 2 Peter 3, 9, I'm not willing that anybody perish. I want everybody to repent and come to faith. Right? So, if anybody ends up in the lake of fire, they have nobody to blame but themselves because it's free. All you have to do is accept the gift. It's not that complicated. It's so simple a child can understand it. I mean, you, you can state the gospel in ten words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, period. Are you going to trust in him and by virtue of your faith receive forgiveness and eternal life? Or are you going to continue to reject him? I don't want that gift. Well, if you do, okay. I mean, uh, what more can he do, right? I mean, if you really want to go to hell that bad, I, he's not going to force you to get saved any more than he forced us to sin. That's the whole nature of the image of God and man is that we have free will. God didn't force Adam and Eve to sin. And he doesn't force the descendants of Adam, unbelievers, sinners, to get saved. I mean, that's Calvinism. Calvinism teaches you don't have a choice. You know, it's just, if you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out, you know. Um, and you can't believe the gospel even if you wanted to. No matter how hard you want to believe the gospel, you can't do it. God has to give you the ability to believe. It's not your choice. Only the elect can believe, and Jesus only died for the elect, Calvinists teach. But that's not what I believe, and that's not what the Bible teaches in my view. The Bible teaches whosoever will may come. So I just want to mention that when we talk about the sheep and the goats, it's not like God is just capriciously and arbitrarily saying, oh, I'm going to send some here and some there. Ha, ha, ha. No. God is, wants everybody to be a sheep. Wait, that came out wrong. You know what I mean. In the context of Matthew 25, 
we don't need any more sheep than we already have in the context of being sheeple. But uh, you know what I mean. All right, so that's another contrast. At the second coming, it's the saved and unsaved. The rapture is only the saved. At the rapture, the dead are raised to life, their bodies. At the second coming, the living are sent to death. Big difference. At the raptures, at the rapture, believers go from earth to heaven. Harpazo, caught up, rescued from this great day of the Lord's wrath that's about to come. At the second coming, just the opposite direction. Believers come from heaven to earth. Okay. Uh, at some more contrast here. The rapture in God's plan is followed by the tribulation. The second coming is followed by the millennium. Again, Revelation 19 comes before Revelation chapter 20. I know that's really complicated, but, you know, 19, then 20. All of us in this room are old enough to have had real math, so we can probably understand that. Uh, clearly, you know, the, the being not appointed to the wrath of God, being rescued from the wrath that is to come, that happens before the wrath because you're rescued before it. So the rapture uh, is followed by the tribulation. The second coming is followed by the millennium. Uh, the rapture is imminent. We'll talk about that next week, uh, meaning it can happen at any moment. The second coming is not imminent. It is preceded by numerous signs. Jesus gives one of his longest sermons in the Bible specifically to detail what to watch for for that future generation of Israel uh, if they want to know when he's coming. When you see this, when you see this, when you see this, oh, when you see the abomination of desolation, now you know it's really getting close. And head for the hills. And, you know, he just outlines the whole seven years beautifully for them. Uh, so it's not imminent. It's got very clear signs. And by the way, um, it would be very easy to chase a rabbit into the whole all of a discourse and several key passages in there. But one of them that I might mention that those who don't believe in a rapture often point to is Matthew 24, 34 where Jesus said, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things come about. What, what generation? Look at the context. He, he gives the signs, and then he says, this generation, the one that I just described, the one that I just spent all this time outlining and detailing, this generation will not pass away till all these things come about. He was not talking about the generation to whom he was talking, but about whom he was talking, Right? Very clear if you look at it in context. But people pull that verse out of context and say, see, the, Jesus must have been speaking metaphorically because the disciples came and went. They're dead. They've been dead for 2,000 years, and the rapture didn't, the second coming didn't happen. The kingdom didn't come. So he must not have been talking about a literal kingdom. Otherwise, he would be wrong. Not if you understand what generation he's talking about. Yeah, here, when, 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 when you see this sign, this sign, this sign, this sign, this sign, the generation that sees all these signs will not pass away. The generation that sees the tribulation will be the generation that sees the second coming. That's the bottom line. Um, again, the rapture is a mystery, new information in the New Testament, whereas the second coming is predicted in the Old Testament. The purpose of the rapture is to rescue. The purpose of the second coming is to judge. And as I said, the rapture is a message of comfort, whereas the second coming is a message of warning and judgment. So uh, we'll stop there, and uh, I'll open it up uh, for questions. And uh, let me pull up our question slide for those watching at home. So, yeah, uh, 
If you got both of them on, let's uh, let's take our first question here. On your first contrast slide, on the rapture side, not the rapture, the second coming side. Okay. Where it says living, should that be unsaved? Is that what you meant by living? Well, yeah, I'm I'm not. I'm just making the contrast that wasn't being specific about who. I'm just saying. Broadly speaking, the rapture involves a resurrection. The second coming involves a, a death. But yeah, it's only the unbelievers that are sent to death. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, improvement. It was on a, an earlier chart. I don't have the chart book in front of me, but I was wondering about Second Thessalonians 2, where you were saying that that's one place that it actually refers to the rapture. And I, was, I guess I was thinking that usually First Thessalonians is the rapture and Second Thessalonians is the second coming. Um, yeah, so let's look at Second Thess 2. I'm, I'm looking at, yeah, like Second Thessalonians 2 versus um, like starting at 3. Yeah, so I, I had this question. Uh, you happy, Gary? <laughs> I know if I didn't change it right now, I'd forget, and I think that, that's a little more clear. But really the contrast was between the reversal, but at least it's, you still get the reversal, but you kind of get more information about who's involved. So Second Thess 2, Paul says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So what is that? That's clearly the rapture, no question about it. So he's already talked about it. He talked about it in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, these books, these letters were written just months apart. But between the first letter and the second one, some people had snuck in and, be, and, and begun to teach the Thessalonian believers falsely after Paul had already talked to them about the rapture. That, and, that, and twice in the first letter he says, you're not going to be here during the wrath of God. These people had snuck in and told them the wrath of God had already come. They were facing persecution. The Roman persecution was heating up. And so he goes on to say, I don't want you to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. In other words, people were forging a letter in Paul's name and telling these people, hey, you missed it. You're already in the day of the Lord. And he says, you know, I don't want you to be soon shaken as if... Uh, the day of the Lord, some versions say the day of Christ, same thing, had come. You see that in verse 2? So the problem, the issue at hand is, are we in the day of the Lord's wrath or not? That's the issue. And so Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you by any means, whether by letter, by word, by forged letter, whatever. That day, the day of the Lord, cannot come or you cannot be in the day of the Lord, the, the, the tribulation period, until two things happen first. And since these two things haven't happened, clearly you're not in the day of the Lord and I stand by what I said in my first letter. That's essentially the idea. What are those two things? First is the falling away, which is one word in Greek, apostasia. And I take it, and I've written an article about this in a journal. I'm happy to send it to you if you want it. But I take apostasy there. It just means departure, by the way. 
So as with all words, context determines meaning. It can mean a physical departure from point A to point B geographically, or it can mean a spiritual apostasy away from the Lord, like a falling away spiritually. And that's the way most often we think of it. When you hear apostasy, you think, oh, they've departed from the Lord, right? But in the context here, I don't think that's what it means. That's just my opinion. Now, a lot of people disagree, and it's okay. We're all come to the same conclusion dispensationally about this passage. So like I said, I'm not going to die on the hill. But Paul is basically, in my view, saying, you can't be in the day of the Lord, folks, because like I told you, you're going to be departing from the earth to the heavens, which is the way he begins chapter 2, by the way, concerning you're being gathered together to me in the air. Uh, but he says, you're going to be gone, like I told you in my first letter, before this happens. Okay. But even if, that's, if, even if you take departure there as a spiritual apostasy, he's still basically saying, you can't be in the day of the Lord unless A, the apostasy has happened, whatever that is, and B, the Antichrist has become known, has, has unveiled. The man of sin is revealed, unveiled. The Antichrist isn't around. The apostasy hasn't happened. One of the reasons that I feel strongly that apostasy means physical departure, it's basically a reference to the rapture. That's why I said this could be really the, one of the strongest passages about the rapture. Where was that list? In all the Bible, if you take it the way I suggest. Uh, but uh, one of the reasons I think that view besides all the context because there's a lot of spatial movement going on you got christ coming back us going out christ coming back to to destroy satan uh you know uh the holy spirit through his influence his restraining influence of the church being taken out of the way you got a lot of movement it just seems like there's nothing in there about spiritual apostasy so but one of the reasons that i i think that it it probably is physical departure is that how would spiritual apostasy be a, an empirical sign that you can't be in the day of the Lord because how do you quantify it? I mean, church has been apostatizing for 2,000 years. So it seems like it's, it's a va too vague to be a, the kind of thing that Paul hangs his hat on. It says, you cannot be in the day of the Lord's wrath unless these two things have happened. But either way, that's all he's talking about there. And then after saying those two things, he goes on to just give some great information and teaching about the Antichrist. And, and so that's what's going on there. So it's, 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 uh, it's really a reference to the rapture that he says, you really sh I shouldn't even need to teach you this because I've already told you, you're not going to be here when the day of the Lord happens. You can't be in the day of the Lord unless the Antichrist has been unveiled. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that clarifies All right, anybody else? Oh, uh, one up here. This question is back to the rapture, and the way you had it on the board, it looked like possibly, will people on earth see people rising to heaven? Will they see Christ bringing these people out of the world to heaven? Because it seems to me like that would be a real teaching moment, I guess. <laughs> of what you think so missed. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I just wondered if they're going to be able to see what's going on or not or is it clear or yeah not? so the bible doesn't say explicitly but i think because you know 
it's like, can you see somebody blink? Well, if you're watching, yeah, but it's, it's in the twinkling of an eye this is going to happen. So, you know, we get this sense, and I, I showed a joke picture last week of, you know, uh, uh, blow-up dolls with helium being, going up to kind of scare people. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get that sense, but, you know, some people liken it to Christ's ascension, and they stood there watching him go up. But, you know, uh, Acts 1.11 or whatever it is, 1.10 or 11 in there, doesn't say that it, he went up in a twinkling of an eye. The rapture is described as a twinkling of an eye. Yeah, but you know some people who and again I'm not going to die on this hill it's speculative either way and it, it could very well be that we see it some good Bible teachers think it is uh, they would say the twinkling of an eye part is the changing part that our translation happens but that the actual meeting of the Lord in the air takes time but either way it's going to happen so oh yeah I think everybody will know that people are missing that's for sure Right, right, but that's exactly right. So then the, Satan, the, the first thing that's going to happen is this great deception. And Satan's going to convince everybody we've been abducted by aliens or whatever he thinks, and uh, people are going to buy it. Yeah, back here. Do you have an opinion on the age of accountability for those children who might be 16, 17, whatever? Yeah. So uh, the, the, the age of accountability is kind of an unfortunate phraseology because it sort of implies that there is an, an, an age, a chronological age at which somehow you cross over. But it's not about your age, it's about your intellect. So a, a person is accountable once they know they're a sinner and they can understand, they can comprehend the gospel. If you are not intellectually capable of comprehending the gospel, then I believe you're under God's grace. Now, Calvinists would vehemently disagree with that, but I absolutely believe, and I, I've talked about this before, and you can make a case biblically that infants, the unborn, young children, who just, they don't understand, you know, sin or anything. But once you are mentally capable of comprehending the, the, the content of the gospel, remember Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. So to be able to express faith, you have to be able to understand the, the proposition, right? So if you don't understand that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, you don't understand you need a Savior, all of that, then I think you're covered. And that would apply not just to young people, but to mentally handicapped people who've, who've never had the ability intellectually to understand the gospel. So, All right, anybody else? I'm just curious, um, you have any examples of the early church that uh, believed pre-tribulational rapture? Uh, I, not at my fingertips, but if you listen to that uh, podcast I did with Dr. Thomas Ice, he had, that's his forte, he's the world expert, literally, I'm not just being flattering, he really is a, a, an academic that's written the most about this, published lots of books about it, and we've got all kinds of examples going back to the early first, you know, early uh, church fathers. Uh, I know there was one from, what, 1700s maybe, I think it was, Emil Gear, well before the Reformation, well before the uh, uh, Bible and dispensationalism came about that certainly taught that. But, yeah, there's a lot. There are several. Uh, 
I bet you could just Google it, Tommy Ice and, you know, uh, early uh, references to the rapture. Yeah, it goes all the way back to the second century, well, to the first century, the apostles, but then the early church fathers. Anybody else? Up here, you're getting your exercise today. All this stuff with Maui and the fire made me think about when the Lord destroys the earth. So could you lay out what actually happens between the millennium and the eternal state and where we will be? I think it happens just instantly. All at once yeah. then? Yeah, yeah. Because isn't the great white throne at the end of the millennium? Correct. Okay, so then at that time, up, down, burn the earth and a new earth. Yeah, God protects us. To somehow transports us into the heavenly realm, the, While the, the, the ultimate burned. outside of time, space, and mass, matter, health, uh, heavenly realm, and then instantly recreates recreates it. Um, you know, that's the plan all along, is to create you know the new heavens and the new earth. So yeah, I, I think it's just an instantaneous thing. And then one other quick question on that seven thousand year plan. Very interesting. I forgot. Refresh my memory on the first two thousand. The next two thousand. I know what the last two and the one is, the millennium. Yeah, so Abraham was 2000 B.C. So Israel was a 2,000-year window, roughly. Uh, the church then was 2,000. The millennium, so that's 5,000. Prior to that, you've got uh, the traditional date for creation, if you go back, you know, uh, and use our modern dating system and overlay it, with what we believe the biblical data is. It's not like God had a calendar in his office and he put an X on the day that he spoke the world into existence, right? But if you were to go back and overlay it, it's 4004 BC. So 4004 BC, time began. So then you've got the, uh, the, the uh, unholy incursion would be around 2300-ish, uh, 2200, I think. The flood's 2300. I'm within 100 years on these. Uh, and then, uh, you know, 2,400, I mean, going forward. So that would be whatever that would, no, no, that'd be the, that's the actual B.C. time period. So basically within 1,500 years of God creating man, he destroyed the earth. That's how quickly we became evil at the flood. So, yeah, 2,000 up to Abraham, 2,000 the Jewish people and then 2,000 church age, and then 1,000 millennium. And then I think we had one up here, too. Um, hi, you said at rapture, dead are raised to life. Just to clarify, that means believers, Old Testament, Correct. and New Testament. No, no, just no. church saints. Just church yeah. saints. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, let me put my chart up here. Uh, again, all these charts are available in our chart book, but this is what the Bible says about when you get your resurrected body. Unbe I mean, uh, Old Testament believers, it's at the second coming. Daniel 12, 2, Isaiah 26, uh, whatever it is, 13 or 19. Um, so uh, they get resurrected to then go in and then finally experience the kingdom that they've been waiting for all this time. Um, all unbelievers don't get their resurrected bodies until the great white throne. Uh, tribulation would be at the second coming as well. Church is at the rapture. Remember, the whole church 
And rapture is a mystery. It's something unique just for us. It has nothing to do with Israel. Um, so yeah, hopefully that will help explain some of that. Any other questions? Great questions tonight. So, yes. So there's, there's the reference to the first and second resurrection. So the catching up the body of Christ is not described as a resurrection, it's a catching up. So we're just like caught up to Christ because we're members of his body? Yeah, no, how, there's... How, what category are we Yeah, the, the re, there is a resurrection at the rapture. That's true. But you have to be dead to be resurrected. Okay. So the, the, what's unique about the rapture is that it simultaneously has the resurrection of church-age saints, but it also has this new information, which is that not everybody's going to die. And those who haven't died are instantly changed, as Paul calls it. So, And then we had one more over here, I think. No? Thank you. So that's an interesting comment that made me think. When we talk, when we talk about resurrection, we're, it's the spirit that's being resurrected versus getting our resurrection, our new bodies. Right? Usually, the, I, I think I've confused the two maybe in my mind in the past that resurrection, it doesn't mean, does it mean your soul or does it mean your body? Your body. Okay. Body. That's why this chart says resurrection of our bodies. So the immaterial, okay. basically man is bipartite, immaterial, material. Okay. Right? So the immaterial is, is what people often call the soul, mm -hmm. sometimes soul, spirit. Spirit is that part of us which is dead at birth spiritually made alive by faith and communicates with God so it's that's spirit soul is our mind will emotions the real us you know the, the, our, the, who we are not what we look like but who we are so the resurrection pertains to the body our soul goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord we never lose consciousness you're always going to be you you'll always be either in this body or you know whatever now you Consciousness is probably the bad word because as long as you're topside this earth, you can be asleep. And that gets into a whole other subject of the subconscious and what's going on there with dreams and whatever. But you can be in a coma, you can be whatever, but that's because we're constrained by this physical body. But at death, we leave the body. The soul goes to be with the Lord uh, and or to torment if you're not a believer. And then the resurrection is the reconstitution of those physical atoms into their eternal form, which for believers is called a glorification. For unbelievers, it's just their final form that's going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. So. My, my question I was thinking about is not related directly to tonight's topic, but do you have anything you could fill me in on back to Daniel 11? Um, I've had some conversations with people of different backgrounds. I'm wondering if there's anything, are there different interpretations of the king of the north and the king of the south? Yeah. Like that those, those can mean different leaders. I mean, whether it be uh, back to the Antiochus time or can it go forward as far as even Germany or Russia? I mean, is that... Is that something that's way far off from... You talk about the historical part of chapter yeah. 11? I'm wondering if, yeah. there's, if there's any... If, if there's any additional symbolism that you subscribe to or don't. 
No, I, I think it's very clearly Antiochus up through verse 35. Okay. And then it shifts. In fact, if you have a good English translation, you can tell it's a new paragraph because the number is darker. It's like bold-faced print. I'm, I understand that it's the Antichrist starting on verse 36. Right, you're just asking, could it be something other than Antiochus in history? Right, the historical part of it. I don't think so. Okay. I mean, that would be, you know. I was just wondering, I, I, I didn't know if it's just something that I wasn't ever made aware of. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I, I it's possible non-dispensationalists might have some different theories. I've never come across any dispensationalists that think it's anything other than Antiochus. The, the uh, changing of those roles, it seems that, um, okay, I mean, there, there were some, like, there was first, second, third, and fourth, you know, these people, like Ptolemy, and I, I don't know sure. the history well enough, but some of those, did, they, sure. replace, did yep. they replace the king of the north and the king of the south for a period of, for some of those passages? Yeah, I think that the general, first of all, non-dispensationists, they typically don't take Daniel historically anyway. Uh, so, I, so I'm just thinking through what I said a moment ago. It's possible that some might take it that way, but probably not. But I think the general consensus is given the proximity to Antiochus in history to when Daniel wrote, it's, he, he seems to be talking about that. Okay, all right. Yeah. Good, thanks. Okay, awesome. Great stuff. Um, so next week we will uh, get into imminency and why we believe that the rapture could happen at any moment. We'll define what that means. Um, but remember, uh, we're only going to be meeting uh, two more times after tonight. Uh, we'll send out email reminders and, and make sure the message gets out there. But just go ahead and make a mental note that uh, we've got two more nights here. And uh, other than that, have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you when we see you. God bless everyone.